This episode is brought to you by our friends at Veridesk. Veridesk makes office furniture simple. Seriously, their height adjustable standing desk is one of my favorites and something I use every day in my video production business, especially when I'm editing. It was really the first step to create a happier, healthier me and a more productive workspace. Today, Veridesk has a full line of furniture and accessories for the office and the classroom that are easy to order, assemble, and reconfigure as your needs change. Ready to work elevated? Go to veridesk.com forward slash behind the brand to learn more. Now let's get into our episode. But you'll look at the camera, you'll do a cold open. Hi, I'm Guy Kawasaki. I'm the chief evangelist of Canva. It's a online graphics design tool based in Sydney, Australia. I'm also Mercedes-Benz brand ambassador, which means I get paid to drive a Mercedes-Benz. I'm an executive fellow at the Haas School of Business of UC Berkeley, and I am so excited to be on Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. <laughs> Nailed it. Hi, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Today I'm here with the incomparable Guy Kawasaki. Guy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I usually ask my guests, how'd you get this job? How do I get, being on the show, you mean? No, you know, how'd you get your job? How'd you get your start? Oh. This is a show of origin stories, you know? Okay. So you can take the chronology back as far as you want to go. Um, okay, so uh, I guess most people would want to start the clock with Apple. So I was the software evangelist, or a software evangelist, for the Macintosh division of Apple. And this meant that this is back in 1983, my job was to convince companies to write Macintosh hardware and software. As to your specific question of how I got that job, <laughs> the answer is nepotism, because my uh, college roommate hired me. Uh, truly on paper, I did not have the right background. I had a psych degree, because that was the easiest major I could find. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I went to law school for a couple weeks and dropped out. <laughs> then I went to work uh, for a jewelry manufacturer in downtown LA while I was getting my MBA. So I have no technical degree, and I didn't work for a tech company. Uh, honestly and truly, my, <laughs> the way I got into Macintosh was nepotism, Mike Boych. So what was it about Macintosh or Apple at the time yeah. um, that attracted you? Why, why not IBM? Because IBM was certainly more successful, well, more well-known. My classmate didn't work for IBM, okay. <laughs> <laughs> is the short answer. Uh, so, but you're asking a deeper question than that, yeah. So I tell you, uh, I saw Macintosh in 1983, uh, way before it was announced. And, well, and, and for context, like, if anyone remembers 1984, which is sort of that iconic, was it a Super Bowl commercial? Yes, yes. That game-changing, iconic, you know, advertising. It's like the case study of all case studies. January 24th, 1984. So to take yourself back in time, at that time, MS-DOS Apple II was character-driven. And if you wanted to move the cursor around, you use cursor keys. And if you wanted to make graphics, you use X's and O's. And so to, to be in that character-based, 24 by 80 world, and then you see Mac Paint, and you grab a, you know, you grab a paintbrush, or you grab a rectangle, and you fill it with whatever, and then you boot Mac right, and you integrate text and graphics and multiple fonts and everything, um, WYSIWYG display to WYSIWYG printing. It was a religious experience. I mean, it, 
it, to go from character base to GUI was a miracle. And as soon as I saw it, it was, you know, the, the clouds parted, the angels started to sing. It was a religious experience. Well, I'm curious because, you know, if I'm connecting dots, you're still doing the same thing in, with Canva. Well, yes. Yeah. So evangelism but, comes... But the, 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 so the question I have yeah. is like, so what was it that attracted you? Was it like, are you an, uh, an artist at heart? Like you love art? Or is it like the user interface or the WYSIWYG, you know, like how easy it is, like basically um, yeah. uh, making, uh, leveling the playing field for all people who didn't code? Well, what was it? It's like pornography, you know, it's hard to define, but you know it when you see it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I, I like cool stuff, and Macintosh was extremely cool. Uh, evangelism comes from a Greek word meaning bringing the good news. So what an evangelist does is bring the good news. I brought the good news of Macintosh that it would make people more creative and productive. That was at the beginning of my career. And now, 30-something years later, I'm at the end of my career, and I'm bringing the good news of Canva. And just as Macintosh democratized computing so that more people could use computers, Canva has democratized graphics so that any one of you can make beautiful graphics. Yeah. And I like to tell people that you can make beautiful graphics in Canva in the time that it would take you to boot Photoshop. And so that's the bookends of my career. And you know, I want to... I want to be remembered as someone who empowered people. So I empowered people with Macintosh, with Canva, with my writing and my speaking and my video interviews. Um, that's yeah. how I want to go. It seems like you're also, you have a passion for teaching because those are the same skill sets that are required for, to be a teacher. Well, the, I am not a teacher. Um, I think teaching is the purest form of evangelism because teachers do not do it for the money at all, right? And one of the pathetic things about this country is that arguably teachers are working with the, with the most precious resource we have, but they're the least paid. It makes no sense. So, you know, why do we pay partners at Goldman Sachs five million a year and we pay teachers 50,000 and those $50,000, they're using that to buy supplies for their school. It's totally ass backwards. Yeah. Oh, don't go, let me go down any more deeper down that rat hole. But anyway, so um, the reason why I'm not a teacher is I really, I don't have good bedside manner. Um, I just, I don't have the patience. And my, I, one realization I came to that I wrote about in the book is that as you look back over your life, um, I think that the toughest bosses and the toughest teachers are the ones that added the most value. So, are you talking about Steve Jobs? I'm talking about Steve Jobs and a teacher of English in high school. And so he was the toughest boss and he was the toughest teacher and I learned the most from the two of them. But when you're in school or when you're in a job, you're looking for the easy boss and the easy teacher. But it may take 20 years for you to realize that, but it's the hard ones that teach you the most. That's awesome. Uh, Tell us how you met Steve Jobs and what, what that was like. I met Steve Jobs because my college classmate brought me in for an interview. Yeah, yeah. In the Macintosh division, I came up to interview for one job working with the Apple University Consortium. So it was to convince universities to use Macintosh. 
the thinking was if you use a Macintosh in college, you're going to want to use it when you graduate. And so I applied for that job. I really wasn't right for that job. I knew nothing about universities. I knew nothing about technology. I knew it didn't work out. Six months later, they had another job for software evangelists. Now, software evangelists um, is really about building trust and spreading the good news. And you know, it's marketing and, and it's sales, purest form, but marketing and sales. And I was in the jewelry business at the time, believe it or not. And in the jewelry business, I worked for a manufacturer. And uh, now you'd say, well, what's the connection between software and jewelry? Well, the jewelry business is an extremely small business. You're dealing with commodities, precious commodities, but commodities nonetheless. And so the jewelry business, and as a manufacturer, we sold to retailers. It was all about trust and personal relationships and all that, which is what evangelism was. So I learned a lot about selling that I've used for the rest of my career because I worked in the jewelry business. So the jewelry business, believe it or not, prepped me for the tech business. Yeah. Uh, it's a smart lesson. Subtle, you know, if the audience didn't catch it, I think there's a lot of things that maybe we you know, oh, I hated that job, or right. I didn't get much out of it, or whatever. But maybe if we look for the, the lessons, we can find super valuable. Well, you can, you know, depending on your outlook in life, you can learn a lot from even the worst. I mean, arguably, you learn the most from the worst conditions, not the best conditions. Yeah, I've heard, you know, Bill Gates say that success is a terrible teacher. Yes. I've, yeah, I've because when you're successful, it's very hard to separate correlation from causation. Yeah. Right. So, you know, imagine if you're you're just out of school and you're the 50th employee of Google, and five years later you're worth a billion dollars, and you think you caused that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to use a surfing analogy, you know, every once in a while you turn around and paddle and you catch a wave. That doesn't mean you know how to surf. And so, and so, you know. On the other hand, if you went to work for a company that failed, at least you see the arrogance, the stupidity. You know, I would make the case that this is an extreme example, but if you went to work for Google versus you went to work for Terranos, you would learn more from having worked at Terranos because you would learn how stupid and arrogant and gullible. I mean, you'd learn a lot from Terranos, believe me, believe me. What early mistakes did you see Apple making um, while you were there? Um, or was it just heyday time? It was kind of just heyday time. Yeah. I don't, you know, we, we made some aberrations. Like we tried to introduce things that didn't make sense. We tried to get people to do things that, you know, we ourselves would not do. I still, I think that's still true of Apple today. Like what? Um, okay, now we're going to really go down rat holes. Okay, so. <laughs> If you take today's laptop at the high end, MacBook Pro, I do not understand why it only has four USB-C ports. Okay. Same. Like, <laughs> do Apple employees not use digital DSLRs? <laughs> do they not have SD cards? Yeah. Do they not have to plug in peripherals? Do they not have to plug in? Do they enjoy carrying dongles? Does, you know, isn't it useful to know that your computer is charging because an LED is green, as opposed to you have to open it up and look for the little Thunderbolt thing? You know, 
Does Tim Cook have a personal concierge that keeps his MacBook charged so he doesn't worry about it being plugged in? I, I just don't understand that. And so there's stuff like that, like, yeah, I'd like to be in the meeting where he said, you know, let's take the LED out of the mag charger, right? Because, like, I don't know. I, 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 I literally, I, like, what went through their brain? What did, they said, oh, I don't like that shade of green LED. It doesn't match the, you know, the dark gray metallic of yeah. the MacBook. So we take that LED out. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's probably a minimalist approach, right? So they're probably, you know, what can we cut and sacrifice to make this thing look like art yeah. instead of be utilitarian? So that's my, my take. So I, I didn't put this in the book because I just experienced it. So, um, so one day, I take a picture of like a 2012 MacBook Pro, and I post it on LinkedIn. I say, hey, do you remember the day when there were like three USB ports, there was a LED in your charger, you could tell when it's charging, there's an SD card reader, and you could just plug an HDMI cable into your computer, you didn't have to carry any stinking dongles. Do you remember those days? And there are many people who commented, oh, I use a 2012, 13, 14, 15 MacBook Pro, and I'm so happy. And I said, this cannot be true. How can this possibly be true? These people are using four or five-year-old computers. How can, and they're in you know, video editing and all that. So <laughs> I, I had a like 2013 MacBook Pro and I, I found a charger and I booted it and I installed Mojave and to my utter amazement it worked. And I started adding Lightroom and Office and it all started to work. I said, holy shit, it does work. <laughs> and then I thought, so then, so then, Roden Track had an article about this company. This is, you're gonna see how warped my mind is. So Roden Track, which is I think in Newport Beach, Roden Track had an article about how this company in London takes old Datsun 240Zs and completely restores them, changes the engine, just like makes it totally, you know, fantastic car. I said, why don't I do that to an old MacBook Pro? So then there's this company called Mac Sales. It's total geeks, okay, Mac geeks. If you ever want to buy RAM or anything like that, Mac Sales. So I know the CEO, I said, can you just trick out for me the most recent MacBook Pro that has HDMI, SD card reader, USB you know, ports? And so he did it, and he put in 16, uh, 16 gigabytes of RAM and a two terabyte SSD. And now, Guy Kawasaki uses a 2015 MacBook Pro. Runs like a champ, probably. And I, it's the best one I've ever had. And, <laughs> and so I gave my daughter a 2018 MacBook Pro that I, I no longer use, and I gave my son a 2018 MacBook Air, and I'm using a computer that's four years old. Like, wrap your mind around that. How can that possibly be? So I don't know how we got onto this subject, but I said, oh, so Apple, so like, and I'll tell you, this is my last diatribe about this. So let's say that we wake up tomorrow and there's a press conference by Apple and it says, we're announcing the new 2020 MacBook Pro. It has built-in SD card reader, <laughs> HDMI port, three USB 3 ports, and two USB-C. And what would we all say? 
freaking hallelujah, man. That is just yeah. a perfect computer. My yeah. God. Take you know, my money. Take my money. Here, yeah. here's five grand. Just leave me enough to eat, right? <laughs> I don't, I don't. So. A guy can dream. You can dream, yeah. right. So <laughs> meanwhile, just go to Mac sales and buy a 2015 tricked out MacBook Pro for two grand, save a grand, not have to carry any stinking dongles, and you know your computer is charging. What a concept. <laughs> Can we go back to your heritage a little bit? Can we go back to your heritage? Because I'm a little bit curious. You know, I read in yeah. the book a little bit about. Um, talk about your namesake. Guy uh, Lombardo? Yeah. And, and talk yeah. about uh, your parents. Like, what yeah. did your dad do? What did your mom okay. do? So I'm third generation Japanese American from Hawaii. Uh, my grandparents came over to basically pick sugarcane. So pick sugarcane in Hawaii. That's what you did if you immigrated from Japan to Hawaii. So we can just go down a slight rat hole right now. So when I read about these, these proposals that you know, we're going to have immigration, but you have to qualify to be an immigrant. So basically, if you have a PhD in computer science and you're from Norway, you qualify as an immigrant, right? And if you're just coming here to pick sugar cane or pick fruit, you're not welcome. By that test, my family would still be in Japan. Actually, we'd probably be dead because I'm from Hiroshima, so I'd be a cloud of dust. But that's, that's a different discussion. And so they came over, and my father never went beyond high school. I'm the first generation college. And my father was a real estate broker, a fireman, and a big band musician. And so he knew Guy and Carmen Lombardo out of Canada. And so they named me Guy after Guy Lombardo. Thank God they didn't name me Carmen after Carmen Lombardo. Yeah. So, so that's how I got to be Guy. And did your mom work, or did she stay? She was, she was a housewife. She, you know, she, was, she dedicated her life to her two children, basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's uh, no small feat. I mean, look, look <laughs> how you turned out. Yeah, well, <laughs> OK. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. Some of the most important work is done you know, within those four walls. Absolutely, so, yes. Yeah. Credit to moms and dads everywhere who do that. Um, talk a little bit about. Um, that experience when you met, was it the Air Force General or Air Force uh, Admiral? General. General. Air and, Force, um, you, don't, you don't have admirals in the Air Force. I don't know. <laughs> oh my my brother-in-law is in the, in the Army, but I don't know anything about military. Just enough to be dangerous, obviously. So. Yeah. Oh, so uh, when I was at Apple, uh, the Macintosh 2 was just being rumored. and. Uh, I found out that there's this thing where the Air Force takes VIPs and lets them go on an F-15 ride. So I was in the, uh, at the time, the Pentagon Mac user group. There was such a thing as a Mac user group inside the Pentagon. So I used to go around to user groups and speak for Apple. So I went to the Pentagon Mac user group and I said, man, I would just love to ride a jet. So I'll tell you what. If you can give me a ride on jet, I'll give you a Mac to anybody here, okay? And these were like basically, you know. You know, colonels and generals. But, 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 the, but the computer was hard to get, yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, so phone rings. It's Lieutenant McInerney. I heard you wanted to, you know, ride an F-15. So come on up to Elmendorf and we'll put you in an F-15. So I go and oh my god. 
I mean, you, you think you've been on some rides, some roller coasters, or whatever. F-15 is mind-blowing. And you is, had to use training to oh, before yeah, that. Yeah, four hours of training. And you know, they keep telling you, don't pull that lever because that's the one that's going to eject you. And, you know, yeah. The last thing that'll go through your mind is the canopy. And, and so... <laughs> It's, it was just an amazing experience. And not that many people have flown in an F-15. It's okay. tiny, right? It's like yeah, you just, and there's, there's, you have things on your leg that squeeze you so the blood doesn't go down to your legs and you black out and everybody throws, it's amazing. Anyway, okay, so fast forward. And you know, I said this thing about getting a Mac II as a joke, okay? Yeah. Because I didn't give them a Mac II. And then uh, six months later, you know, hi, I'm Jane Smith. I'm from the, the Office of Inspection from the U.S. Air Force. And we had a report that you bribed the general. <laughs> <laughs> so someplace in the FBI records or something, there's a case where I was, you know, I bribed the general to give me a ride in a... Double uh, agent, it, Guy yeah, Kawasaki. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Who so, knew? But I explained the situation and, you know, I haven't... Been I'm arrested sure, yet. I'm sure you enchanted her or yeah. him. <laughs> so I would, I, there must be some freedom of information I can get that file. But um, yeah. well, the military seems busy with other things right now. Like <laughs> fighting terrorists at the wall. So yeah. So let's talk about the book, uh, Wise Guy. Um, in the very upfront, you know, you're very upfront. Uh, to say this is not a memoir. Yeah. Uh, break down what the book is, who it's for, and why you wrote it. Okay. So, well, first I have to tell you a funny story. So, once Tom Clancy was announcing a new book at a press conference, and a reporter said, what is the book about? And Tom Clancy's answer was, it's about 25 bucks, <laughs> which I thought was the world's greatest answer. So, this book is about 15 bucks. <laughs> um, so it's, this, 20, it's 25 on Amazon. Yeah. So this book is a collection of stories of my life, the stories that influenced my life. It is not a memoir autobiography for two reasons. One, at a philosophical level, I do not believe my life merits an autobiography or memoir. A memoir is like Nelson Mandela. You know, it is sister, it's Mother Teresa. It's not Guy Kawasaki. This is not going to be made into a movie. So I've, I've lived and worked in Japan, you know, in, you know, in my past yeah. work experience I lived in Japan. So actually that, to me, is very Japanese. What? Just, oh, it's not a memoir? Yeah, well, it just, it's called Enryo, which, is, yeah, which yeah. is like to be very reserved. You're like, oh, no, 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 you know, uh, I'm not a big deal you, or, you know, don't, don't pay attention to me. You, or, you're giving me too much credit. Um, it's not that I believe I'm a big deal and I'm telling you I'm not. I just, I'm not a big deal. So... So, if you've read Chicken Soup for the Soul, you know, which is a collection of inspirational stories, this is kind of like that, except all the stories in the book are mine. So it's not contributed. And no soup. And, and well, funny you should mention that because I pitched my publisher and told him I wanted to name this book Miso Soup for the Soul. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but they wouldn't go for it. And then I'll tell you another name. Okay, so I have to tell you one great story from the book. So one day, uh, this is about 15 years ago, I had a 9-11. So I'm sitting in my 9-11, and I'm at a stop. You're talking about a Porsche? Porsche, yeah. Okay. And I look to my left, and there's this car with four teenage girls. 
and they're looking at me, making eye contact, smiling and all that. So I'm thinking, guy, you have finally arrived. You know, it's, it's your writing, your speaking, your hot dot-com company, your work at Apple, whatever. Even teenage girls know who you are. So the girl in the front seat goes like this, you know, roll down the window. I put down the window, she sticks her head out, and she says to me, are you Jackie Chan? <laughs> <laughs> and so... You said yes, of course. <laughs> so I told my publisher, the first version of this book, I, w I had it named, Are You Jackie Chan? And they rejected that title, too. <laughs> um, but I will tell you that you know, there's always a silver lining. So you know, one of my goals, because I have you know, simple, perhaps insipid goals, is that one day, Jackie Chan is in Hong Kong in his Bentley, or I hope his S-Class, and he looks over and there's four teenage girls telling Jackie Chan to roll down his window and the girl in the front says to him, are you Guy Kawasaki? <laughs> One must have goals in life. You know, some people want a world peace, climate change. I want Jackie Chan to be asked if he's me. <laughs> Well I'll tell you one more story. Wait, well wait. Well played, well played. I'm the easiest interviewer in the world. You just kick me off and I keep going. So once a week, and I'm surprised it didn't happen tonight, someone comes up to me and says, your book changed my life. I had no direction in my life. And I read your book, and it helped me get my act together. I, I know where you're going with yeah. this. I know where you're going with this. And exactly. so I have 15 books. I say, well, which one of my 15 masterpieces changed your life? And they say, rich dad, poor dad. I knew. <laughs> I knew. I knew oh, he was going there. God. And I know Kiyosaki. I've, I've, I've stayed in his beach house until my son wrecked it. So, That's awesome. So, um, it, that happens all the time. It's yeah. so funny. Well, you just go with it, right? Just lean it. Yes, I am. I, 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 I am. I tell him I'm poor dad, poor dad. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, so let's, let's impart some wisdom, because I know a lot of people who are watching this show, uh, they're entrepreneurs, yeah. they're small business owners, uh, or maybe they're working for a company and they're trying to take some wisdom back to their job to level yeah. up or figure out, uh, break down some of the most important lessons that we should know about. Well, I think for entrepreneurs, the most important lesson is to focus on the prototype, that the purpose of a company is not to raise money, it's not to write a pitch or a plan or a forecast or a PowerPoint presentation, although now you can do PowerPoint presentations in Canva, okay? So you make it in Canva, you export to PowerPoint. Um, and, and what they forget is that, oh, it's all about raising money and you know, making these pitches and plans, but really it's about making customers. And the only way you make a customer is a prototype. Because customers don't buy spreadsheets, and customers don't buy presentations. So focus on the prototype. Um, so what if you have a service? Same thing. I mean, you, know, you can have an early version. I mean, in a sense, you know, Canva isn't a physical product. It's a service. And it started off just making you know, 20 design types, yeah. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Now it's got 300 design types. So it's a SaaS business, right? It's a SaaS business, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes, so I mean anything can be a prototype. I'm not talking just about you know, a physical yeah. hand-soldered board. So why is that so important? I mean, because, it's, it's logical and intuitive, because, but why? Because all the bullshit stops when you have a prototype. Um, you know, anybody can boot PowerPoint or Canva and make a pitch. 
but you have to show up with, you know, this is the site running, this is the computer running. People, the dogs are actually eating the food. I'm not telling you, you know, because most pitches go like, oh, 300 million Americans, one in four owns a dog, 75 million dogs, each dog eats two cans of dog food per day, total addressable market of 150 million cans of dog food per day. With my rock star co-founder programmer, how hard could it achieve 1% market share? 1% 1 of 150 million is one and a half million times 365 because dogs eat all year. This is not a B2B business, this is B2C business, although actually it's a B2D business. <laughs> And so you take one and a half million and multiply by 365, it's 600 million cans of dog food per year, worst case. B to D business, let that sink in for a second. <laughs> I love that. I'm gonna use that again. That was, Feel free. That was good. So, yeah, and, and I would second that. So in my business, because I make videos, yeah. sometimes you know we'll have a story or we'll tell, you know, kind of you know, create the scene. Yeah. And a lot of people are like, yeah, I don't get it. And so, you know, you have to create either a storyboard which they can see and feel, or you have to actually create a comp. So yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm totally second that. Or you have to use a metaphor, right? It's like Star Wars meets Driving Miss Daisy. But you'd be surprised, <laughs> even, really? you know, like you that? have, people love comps, uh, com yeah. comparisons, but you'd be surprised how still it's kind of like vague and you actually need to show and you them can tell something. when they don't get it, right? Yeah. 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 Okay, so prototypes, uh, what else? For, for, I think, people who are not in a startup but are working in a company, um, the wisdom is that your job is to make your boss look good. And many people believe, well, the way I advance is to make my boss look bad because then you know, the miracle will occur and people will realize I'm better than my boss and promote me over my boss. I have never, ever seen that happen. So a much wiser thing is to make your boss look as good as possible. And then as your boss progresses, you draft behind him or her. And so when he or she becomes CEO, you become CXO. You know, mm -hmm. that's the plan. And um, yeah, wouldn't we all like to have said that you know, we, we worked for Steve Jobs, right? So I've been drafting off Steve Jobs for 30 years. I mean, I'm proof if you do one thing right in your life, you can coast for 30 years. So imagine if my attitude was, I'm going to make Steve Jobs look bad. Well, first of all, that's very hard to do because he's you know, so freaking good. But he, second of all, he would have fired me. But third of all, you know, what would that have proved? Um, so I think it would be much better if people went through life saying, I got to make my boss look good. Yeah. Talk about your ability to stay connected to people. I mean, you mentioned nepotism, and um, I think it's actually a really smart strategy. <laughs> but like, um, it works about, for the Trumps. <laughs> well, talk about how it has um, now paid dividends to future your future, your posterity. So there is a certain young kid or guy that worked in CRM business, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. So uh, when I was at Apple. I gave Mark Benioff his first summer job, his first job, really. So he was a freshman at USC. What was his nickname? Yeah, well, I'm coming to that. Okay. Jeez, you know, like, I can tell the story without prompts here. Um, so yeah, so uh, I, hired, I hired Mark Benioff. He wrote assembly language programs, examples, during his summer of his freshman year at USC. And Mark Benioff, if you don't know, is the founder of Salesforce.com. This big guy, like, I don't know, 6'3", 6'4", 
let's just say he's not anorexic, he's, you know, full. And, and so he came from a wealthy part of the Bay Area called Hillsboro. And so the code name for him was the Hillsboro Doughboy, based on the Pillsbury Doughboy. So now, you know how, like, you get a first impression of someone, and it's very hard to break that. So like, I keep thinking of him as the Hillsborough Doughboy, but now he's the freaking billionaire Salesforce.com founder. But I can only see him as the you know, Hillsborough Doughboy. But anyway, so that's one funny story. So the lesson there is be good to your interns. <laughs> because you just never know where your intern's going to end up. Yeah, that's that just, lesson one. That reminds me, actually, of something you tweeted. This is so <laughs> random. It, maybe it's like 2010. Correct me if I'm wrong. I remember that tweet. You you tweeted something to the effect of, "The nobodies of today are the somebodies of tomorrow." That's right. That just popped in my mind. So, wait. So let me remind me of that, okay? Because I can't keep two thoughts in my brain at once anymore. Okay. So remind me about that tweet about nobody's ever knew somebody. But let me finish the Benioff story. Okay. So now fast forward, now he is no longer the Hillsborough Doughboy, he is the man, right? And this is about three or four years ago, so the guy who nepotistically brought me into Apple is named Mike Boych. His son graduated from college, his son wanted an interview at Salesforce. I send an email to Mark Benioff after you know, 30 years, and I say, Mark, the guy who was my boss when I hired you, son wants a job. Can he get an interview? One hour later, gets an interview. Another year goes by, my son wants a job at Salesforce. Mark, remember me again? Now my son's one that's interview. CCs to the VP of HR, and boom, my son, you know? And so the Hillsborough Doughboy slash Mark Benioff, you know, he remembered that. Um, I, I, let's just all take the high road, right? That, you know, someone gave you your first summer job, and 30 years later, you pay them back. I mean, that's the high road. So that's, that's the story of the honor of Mark Benioff. Yeah, that's karma, right? I that mean, is the... karma. Karma is a bitch, but yeah, <laughs> that is karma. Um, what was the second thing? I, uh, well, so I remember distinctly, I don't know where I was at some. Oh, the tweet about yeah. nobody's other new somebody's. Yeah. So I have a theory that in the 80s and 90s, life was sort of a pyramid, where at the top of the pyramid in tech was probably Walt Mossberg at the Wall Street Journal. So every Thursday, Walt Mossberg wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal saying, you got to try one, two, three, you have to try compact, you have to try, you know, whatever, right? WordPerfect, 2.0, whatever. And so if you were in Walt Mossberg's column in the Thursday of Wall Street Journal, basically it made you. Like, that alone could make you. Now, we fast forward till today, and I think that the pyramid is totally inverted. And now, at the top is Lonely Boy 15, Susie from Orange County, and you know, Lonely Boy 15 is still living with his mom, and he has 15 followers, not 15 million. He doesn't have the Wall Street Journal platform, but He's the opinion leader for a small group of people. And you know, he tries TikTok, and he gets 14 other people to try TikTok. And one day, TikTok has 500 million downloads. It's not because Walt Mossberg said TikTok is the what. It's not because Walt Mossberg said 
Twitter is the one. It's because Lonely Boy 15 at South by Southwest fell in love with Twitter or TikTok. That has major ramifications on how you introduce a product. Now, I'm not saying if you get in the Wall Street Journal, you should turn that down. I mean, you, you know, you take this interview, but you have to stop thinking that it's the old product introduction life cycle where the influencers tell the early adopters, who tell the middle adopters, who tell the late adopters, who tell Main Street. So the key is to get the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post. I mean, another example for you would be books. So I'm so old, I remember that you know, one of the influences on what books I read was New York Times book review. Right? If the New York Times book review, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm literally, I don't think I've bought a newspaper in years. Okay? So it used to be that you cherished Sundays and you get the New York Times and there would be a book review section and it would say, you know, read, I don't know, whatever. And so you would read that book because the New York Times said read that, right? So yeah. contrast that to today. So a book comes out, you check a few days later. It's 50 reviews, averaging four and a half stars. You press on a button and you bought it. One click, right? And if you were to really examine who gave those 50 reviews, it's Lonely Boy 15, it's Susie from Orange County, it's, you know, bookseller from Arkansas, it's yeah. whatever. It's not the New York Times, it's not Kirkus, it's not Publishers Weekly, it's not the Washington Post. But you just say, four and a half stars, 50 people read it, good enough for me, buy. Well, that has major ramifications on an author that, you know, it's not about sucking up to the New York Times book review because they only review, I don't know, 52 books a year, whatever it is. And so that, that is a whole new way of approaching life. So let me ask a more practical question diving deeper into that, which is then, you know, all of us probably in some shape or form are trying to get more attention for our product yes, or service. Sure. So then how do we get, so how do we find those you know, obscure, you know, uh, thought leaders or influencers, or maybe they're not so obscure. And then how do we get that, get their attention and get them, well, get momentum? So, uh, in a sense, you're asking what, what makes an evangelist or how do you do evangelism, right? And I'll tell you, 90% of evangelism is you evangelize something good. So this is called Guy's Golden Touch. And Guy's Golden Touch is not that whatever I touch turns to gold. Guy's Golden Touch is whatever is gold, Guy touches. <laughs> and so, you know, the reason why I am so successful with Macintosh and Canva is not because of Guy. It's because Canva and Macintosh are so good. And so, you know, that's the key is to find, create, affiliate, you know, whatever with something good. Because it's easy to evangelize great stuff. It's hard to evangelize crap. Okay, so that's fair. So let's, let's take it one step further, which is let's make the assumption that everyone in here makes something amazing. Okay. You just don't know it yet. Yeah. Or I don't know it yet. How do you get discovered? Because, you know, there's a lot of things, including this show, for example. I mean, we started in about 2009, 2010. Yeah. And we've just been chugging along quietly sometimes when no one paid attention. You know, slow and steady wins the race. And here we are, you know, what, nine years yeah. later. And finally, people are starting to pay attention. But it took a long time. So if I wanted to speed up that process, if I wanted to get more attention sooner, how do I do that? Well, first of all, you have to have a good show, right? So yeah. let's make that assumption. Yeah. I had Guy Kawasaki in 2012. Right, right. He was awesome. Twice, yeah. yeah. So, 
So you have to have a good show. And then what I think is, has changed the world is social media. Yeah. That social media is God's gift of marketing. So I post it to my Instagram stories, and I share it on LinkedIn, and I put it up on YouTube, and I tweet it out. And, and you suck up to other people. Yeah, so, so because everyone, so my observation is like now is the best time ever to create something new. The yeah. corollary to that is there's also m more people than ever creating new stuff. Also true. And so it's harder than ever to break through, especially you know, despite the fact that you have something amazing. Yes. And so how? How do I do that? Because now I'm just in the sea of voices, especially, you know, I love Twitter. I've loved Twitter since the start. But now it's just like just people are talking or, you know, Instagram. You know, people are just, well, no I, one's engaging is what I, I'm saying. I don't think there's a magic bullet here, but um, I think that it requires experimentation. And, you know, if you're food or travel or something that generates particularly great pictures, you focus on Instagram, right? And if you're career-oriented, business-oriented, you focused on LinkedIn. So there's some kind of broad stroke advice. Yeah. Um, and you also, I think that you know, when the 800-pound gorilla says do something, you do something. So if Facebook says we're into live video, you do live video. And, and if Instagram says now we're into stories, why well, you make stories? And so you just, if the gorilla speaks, you listen. And I, I, I wish I had some magic. Uh, I, I would say that you know, as a conceptual model, think of Wikipedia or NPR. So Wikipedia and NPR, they raise tens of millions of dollars with awful ads, extremely disruptive. Nobody likes their banners or their interruption into, you know, well, we're going to, like, you know, this is Terry Gross, and I'm asking you now to pick up your phone and donate $10. And if you do that, you know, the people at, I don't know, Microsoft are going to match your donation dollar for dollar. And if you do it right now, you'll get a free Eton hand crank radio so that in the event of a nuclear attack by North Korea, you'll know when you're going to die. And, you know, <laughs> and so I don't really care about that hand crank radio. Yes. And, but now how does NPR and how does Wikipedia get away with that? It's because they provide great content. Yeah. And so people feel like they have to reciprocate. That's the lesson. Reciprocation. Did you catch that? Yeah. So give the gift first. Create the value first without any expectation of return. Earn the trust. Earn the attention. And then when you have the captive audience, then you go in for the hard sell, which is today is our day to raise money. You know, put it right there. Today is your day to buy a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it's, it's actually, you know, tale as old as time, but it's, it's a time-tested model that works. That's our model with the show. Right. You know, so we're putting out, um, you know, what we feel is pretty good content. We'll give it away for free. Well, yeah, we don't part, put it behind a paywall. Well, part, part of the wisdom in my book is that, you know, truly the rising tide does float all boats. Yeah. And so... I love that quote. The, you know, so the rising tide floats all boats. And also, that people can be divided into two types. You're either a baker or an eater. So if you're an eater, you say, wow, this pie is only so big. I got to eat as much as I can. If you're a baker, you say, I can bake another pie. Everybody can have pie. No problem. So you should be a baker who believes that the rising tide floats all boats. Now, this doesn't guarantee you success, but man, it's a lot easier way to live life. 
than to always be, you know, this chicken shit person trying to fight over the scraps of the limited pie. Yeah. Uh, Adam Grant, who's another author I'm yeah. a fan of, Adam talks a lot about givers and takers. Yeah. And I love what he talked about, um, that, you know, a lot of people are either the giver or the taker. There's, there's a hybrid in between, but, like, you know, if you're someone that's always just taking, 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 you're very selfish. And NPR is a great example. It's like you're listening to NPR, right. you're entertained by them, it's free programming. And then when they ask you for 10 bucks, you're like, oh, 10 bucks, you know. But, like, shame on you, right? If, you, exactly. if that's your attitude. Like, the world is a better place because we have great content, uh, free programming. Well, like that. I think givers are happier people. Yeah. And I also think they're more successful. Yeah. Um, now, I wish I could say, you know, I can prove that it's causation, but um, it's just an easier way to live life. I mean, jeez. Yeah. I, I just caught a glimpse of you doing this right now. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I, I'm catching a little bit of shaka. Uh, let me ask, with, with the limited time that we've got left, I know you're ha you have a catch a flight. Um, if you could, well, let me back up by saying, I think there's a few things that I see on a regular basis when I talk to people, yeah. um, small business owners, entrepreneurs, um, even people who have great resumes like you. There's a certain point where they get stuck. And the common denominator that seems to get people stuck is this, the F word, failure. And they get stuck on failure. And they think, well, you know, I, I failed once, and so therefore yeah. I'm going to fail again. Maybe they manufacture that in their own mind, or maybe that's you know, it's what gets told to them. Yeah. Um, can you think, well, and, and let me also say that that's baloney, right? Like, yeah. you have to have failure in order to get to the success. Well, you could make the case if you haven't failed, you haven't tried it hard enough. Right. right. You haven't so, taken enough risk. So with that kind of setup, can you think about, like, an epic failure or a lesson learned that you went through in order to get it right to sort of get you to where you are now? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Well, you know, I haven't had any, quote, epic failures. I haven't, for that matter, honestly, have any epic successes, right? So it's not like I'm a billionaire. So I'm not Steve Jobs. I'm not Bill Gates. I'm not Elon Musk. Um, I mean, I've made mistakes. I quit Apple twice. I turned down Steve Jobs for a third job. So right there, that's 300 million. You know, 300 million here, 300 million there adds up to a lot of money after a while. Um, and that's I, 80s money. I, yeah, I turned down. I turned on the opportunity to interview for the first CEO position of Yahoo. That probably cost me two billion. So now we're at 2.3 billion. <laughs> you know, we're talking like I could have a private plane at you know. SNA and not have to schlep up to LAX right now. Um, so those are mistakes. I, you know, you could make the case that Macintosh has never achieved dominance, right? It's five, ten percent market share. We thought it would be ninety percent market share. So you know, you could call Macintosh a failure. I've started several software companies. None of them became a Microsoft or anything like that. Well, and you had a social network for a while, right? Yeah, but I mean, there's nothing that I like cashed out. Now, <laughs> OK, so now, fast forward. I, I don't know if there's any wisdom in this, but now you know, I'm chief evangelist of Canva. And Canva recently closed a round led by Mary Meeker of Kleiner Perkins, where the post money valuation was $2.5 billion. So I'm part of a unicorn, and 
man, it's nice to be part of a unicorn. It's the first time in my life. And you know, again, it's guys golden touch. I can't tell you I made Canva successful. I, you know, I helped. I didn't hurt it. But I, I got on a rising tide that was becoming, you know, freaking a tsunami to mix metaphors. Um, Let's say hockey stick because you're a hockey guy. Yeah, that's true. But I gave up hockey for surfing. Um, and so, I, to get back to your question, I, I, I didn't have this like, you know, epic failure down to my last five dollars, mm -hmm. everything on, you know, a backpack, homeless. I did. There would be a movie about my life. I didn't have that. I mean, I just kind of, you know, if you take extremes, if you take extremes like, I was the last guy in the helicopter that came out of the US Embassy in South Vietnam, and they dropped me off in Fresno with one bag, and they said, you know, have at it, to, I don't know, at the other extreme is Donald Trump Jr. I'm like in the middle. I'm closer to the guy from the South Vietnam Embassy. But I, it, it's not like, I really suffered. I didn't have any abuse. I didn't have any drug. I mean, I just kind of had like a, you know, sort of in the middle life. I made the most of it. Yeah. And, and so I no made... worries, Guy Kawasaki life. Let me well, ask it a different I, way. I had a lot of worries, but I. Let me ask it a different yeah. way. So th then, you know, you have, well, college age kids now, yes. or grown kids. Yes. Um, what advice do you give to college age kids about, you life? know, finding success? Uh, I. I well, one thing I tell high school kids as they're about to go to college is do not rush through college. That it's the best four years of your life. If you can, make it five years. I didn't tell my own kids that, but I, I tell other people's kids that. That, you know, this is the last time you can live off somebody in your life, so you should extend it as long as you can. And, and for many parents, I mean, you know, they've worked their lives off so their kids can have a college education. Why deprive your parents of the satisfaction of putting you through college? Extend that time. <laughs> and so, so there's that. Now, for college graduates, I, I, I like to tell them that you, know, you think that you have to optimize your, your first job, right? That you have to like pick the perfect one with the perfect title, the perfect path, the yeah. perfect company, and all that. You have to find it. Yeah, you have to find it. And that is so wrong. Because I think that, you know, as long as you're learning, it's okay at that age. And I, I could almost make the case, to go back to the other analogy, that um, if you picked Google out of college, and you were Google employee number 50, and you became worth a billion dollars, and you were 25, it's hard to match, hard to beat that as the perfect it job, right? On the other hand, you probably are then an insufferable asshole for the rest of your life. <laughs> On the other hand, if you went for a company and you, I don't know, you work for uh, pets.com and it imploded, or you work for Terranos and imploded, you probably will learn more from that experience about what not to do. And then I think someone who gets out of college today, over the course of their lifetime, they're going to work for 10 or 15 people or 10 or 15 companies. In my lifetime, you know, you work for one or two and you retired after 25 years and you played golf and you had a gold watch and all that, but that's just, that doesn't happen that way. So people should, kids should just chill out, man. Just like, I'm not saying just, you know, well, you're take not five years off and go to Europe, but you don't have to, you don't have to put yourself in the rat race 
immediately. Yeah, and, and I guess you're sort of indirectly telling parents to chill out too, because maybe there's some pressure of like, go conquer the world. Or well, I don't know. listen, I'm not going to tell people how to parent their children. <laughs> I have enough problems parenting my own children, but uh, yeah, I, I, it's mostly I meet a lot of Type A kids who just you know they. Of course, they were taking violin at two, they, you know, they had calculus at four, started a foundation at six, and then they were trying to decide, well, should I go to Dartmouth or Stanford or Carnegie Mellon or Harvard, right? Um, but those are the people who become doctors, lawyers, and dentists, right? And I, I, I read, I don't know if it's true, but Steve Jobs' high school GPA was 2.75. Some of my children, I think they're aspiring to be Steve Jobs. But anyway, so, so, but I mean, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean okay. So I should purposely get 2.75. I'll be the next Steve Jobs. But I think it shows that you know, there's different kinds of smarts. And I don't know. When's the last time you used calculus? Yeah, maybe about an hour ago. <laughs> okay. I mean, just me. Yeah. So, yeah, it reminds me of what. Um, I have one of these brains that can recall lessons. Um, yeah. I, I love books for that reason. That's why I appreciate you writing on paper. You know, digital, of course, is great, but I love to hold a book in my hands. I think about uh, Sir Ken Robinson's book called The Element. And yeah. He talks about, I think it was uh, Einstein's quote that says, you know, there's a fish and there's a giraffe, and, you know, don't compare yourself. You know, if you're the fish, uh, don't compare yourself to the giraffe because we do different things. Yeah. And so, uh, you have to find your element, you know, fish to water, bird to air, uh, and whatever that is, and you should double down on that and lean in hard, and that's, that's kind of what you're saying. Yes, um, exactly. We also share some commonality. So you get kind of personal in the book, too. You talk about your uh, two adoptive children. Yeah. And maybe you don't know this about me, but I'm also adopted. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And so when I read that about you, um, I was impressed. And well, Why? I just think, um, well, I would like to ask you why you decided to do that. Well, so you have, you had two, you have two, two older two biological. boys. Yeah. There's two versions to this. The way I remind, remember is that we decided we wanted a girl. And if you had two boys biologically, statistically, 90%, you're going to have another boy. So we said, well, the only way we can guarantee having a girl is adopt. That's how I remember it. My wife said that conversation never happened. So I, I, I don't know. So anyway, we got a girl. And then two years later, the same uh, orphanage called us up and said, hey, the same people had a brother. You know, you want him too? I said, why not? So that's why we have two siblings. Just like that. Just like I was, I was, on, I was in the airport. She said, well, you know, our daughter's name is Noemi. Noemi has a brother. Should we adopt him? I said, why not? What the hell? I mean. You know, some people, they go to Africa and they build churches and water tanks and all that. I adopt children. I mean, <laughs> uh, adoption is one of the most beautiful experiences in the world, I have to tell you. And I, I, I relate to a story in the book where um, <laughs> I, I was at a dinner party with a friend, and we told him that we decided to adopt. And it's not like... It's not like we posed it like, um, we're thinking of adopting, what do you think? Okay, we said, we're adopting a child, you know, whatever, right? And this, Done deal. And this schmuck says, well, you know adopted children have developmental problems, right? 
Like, what kind of asshole would say that? I mean, you know, seriously. Like, somebody told you they're adopting children, and what, you're going to say, oh, yeah, adopted children have more developmental problems. So who's going to talk me out of it? I was going to, like, what, pick up the phone and say, yeah, we're having second thoughts. You know, like, keep your kid. Yeah. I, I just, there was a lesson there, which is when someone has decided to do something, just shut up. You don't have to express your honest opinion on everything. You yeah. Know, there's a lesson there. Um, but anyway, for me, like, like, I, I don't. I've met some men who say, you know, do you still do you feel the same about your adopted children as your biological children? And I have to tell you that my experience is that when the orphanage places that baby in your arms, it's the same. I mean, it. I, I, and like, let's just be honest, okay? A man's contribution to the birth of a child is roughly 10 seconds. Five, if you're not lying, okay? <laughs> and so, you know, the mom has to carry it and push it. I mean, a man, let's say the mom does 99.9% .9 of the work, right? A man just five seconds. And so it's not like you're bonding with your semen as it's leaving you. So, you know, like, they place this child in your arms, and like, OK, I mean, this is a beautiful thing. I, adoption is truly a beautiful thing, it's truly. It's just, I, I would make the case that adoption is better for the adopters than the adoptees. Because some people have this attitude, like, oh, you did this two kids a favor. You took them from poverty in Guatemala, and now they live in Atherton, California, you know, most expensive zip code in the world. Like, you did them such a great favor. I don't look at it like that. I think they did me the favor. Such joy they bring. Yeah, that's a healthy attitude. <laughs>